Hello, welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and you're very welcome to join me today. Now, today I've got with me Dr. Simon Lenton, who is the who chaired the expert reference group for the Council of Europe on child-friendly health care. And that was adopted in September 2011 in the Declaration of Lisbon by 47 nations in Europe. So that was only a few years ago, Simon. So what's happened since then? And welcome to the programme. Thank you, David. Let me just recap, first of all, what the intention of child-friendly health care was. The intention was to embed the key principles from the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child into a very practical framework that would improve the planning, delivery and improvement of health services for children and families. The key principles from the, I think, 54 articles of the Declaration um, are that children should be able to participate in decisions about them and in the way that you know, services are provided and in policy matters. So participation was number one. Second element was prevention. We need to focus on prevention throughout all healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. We want to prevent the problem in the first place, prevent the complications from a condition, say diabetes if you've got it, and obviously we want to prevent the system doing any harm in the process of delivering healthcare. Next, we want to promote the health and well-being of children, and uh, we describe the promotion of assets and the flip side of that coin is protection from hazards, in other words, the prevention of harm. Yeah. So two sides of the same coin, but if you like, that's the primary prevention agenda. And then finally, we want really high quality uh, provision of services, you know, to endorse Article 24 or uh, Article 24 of UNCRC. Yeah. Children have the right to high quality health care. So we have to decide what we mean by high quality health care and I think there have been a lot of both national and international reports um, outlining how fragmented and disjointed health care provision can be from the experience of children and families. So I think the the mantra that we came out with was that we want uh, health care to be designed and delivered on the concept of journeys that families take through health services and groups of journeys would be called pathways of healthcare delivery. Okay. And the fundamental point here is that we want all the parts in place and working well together to achieve the outcomes that we want from the system. Now, the focus was very much on healthcare, but obviously contributing to health and well-being includes health, education, social care, and a whole variety of kind of community-based determinants that we also need to factor into mm. that provision. Because it's not just health professionals we're not talking to here. No, no absolutely. No. Um, and that, if you like, that system also needs to have some way of identifying the weakest point in the pathway. Because if you're wanting to improve either experience, outcomes or safety of pathways, then you need to be, to be able to identify that weakest link because that's where your, your most cost-effective health improvement or innovations need to happen. Okay. Just let me ask you one thing, yeah. because just, just to start with, there's so many different aspects of what you just said. It's been four years since you made that presentation to the Council of Europe. Yes. 
obviously we know that, that especially big change takes a long time. I mean, I think that's a pretty logical kind of thing. But there have been developments, haven't there? There have been interactions. You yourself still go around Europe and, and, and talk on this matter and develop it further. What response are you getting at the moment, both at home in the UK and abroad? Well, in the UK, the British Association for Community Child Health, shorted batch, and the British Association for Child and Adolescent Public Health, BACAF, um, have jointly come together to, to um, write a paper called the Family Friendly Framework. Right. And basically what that attempts to do is to uh, create a very practical framework suitable for particularly a UK environment, but actually it's equally applicable to most um, whole systems for children and families. And the intention is then to create what I call alignment and synergy between all of the parts, whether it's been the commissioning side, the provisional delivery side, or if you like regulation and improvement. Because at the moment, many of those elements are not aligned. I mean, I, I sometimes use the example, if you have a pile of magnets in the middle of a table, there are just a big pile of magnets, you start lining them up and you start getting a powerful force and then new magnets come alongside and you all face Good it, hopefully, yeah, in the right yeah, direction. Yeah. Good analogy. But I think what it requires is a fairly fundamental understanding of how what I call complex adaptive systems work. Now, as soon as I talk about complex adaptive systems, most people turn off. <laughs> okay, And I, I don't blame them for turning off at all. But actually, that's how we as human beings work. You know, our blood sugar goes up, insulin comes in, comes back down to the right level. Blood sugar goes down, glucagon comes in, comes back up to the right level. I'm only having this conversation with you because I have approximately 1700 feedback loops all happening simultaneously so my lip tongue breathing eye contact etc etc is constantly being monitored and adjusted so that hopefully i can say something sensible and you can understand it so complex and adaptive complex and adaptive and i guess one of the key points about complex adaptive thinking is that if you change one part it often has consequences for other parts of the system right okay. so if you start changing the way um, primary care works then there will be consequences for say secondary care or if you change one part of the pathway then there'll be consequences further down the mm. line and okay. when thinking about changing systems we have to be aware of if you like that complexity which is why we want to involve the key stakeholders in any change process. And so the community health bodies that you mentioned, yeah. who've taken this on, yeah. the family-friendly yeah. work, um, I mean, what kind of response are they getting at the moment from other agencies who, who regularly intervene with families? Okay. Um, First thing to say is that a lot of the other agencies were involved with the development of the okay. family-friendly okay. framework. So, if you like, we had them on board from the start. Clearly, talking about pathways and networks and journeys isn't necessarily um, the language that, say, teachers or social workers might use in the first instance. But most people in, if you like, more management positions can appreciate that they work in a whole system 
and actually having some structure for that system to ensure that everybody is doing the right things at the right time to the right kids with the right practitioners to achieve the right outcomes is fairly basic thinking okay. and fairly acceptable. I mean, reading in between the lines there of what you said, mm. I'm guessing you think that it's more positive than not. Yes. Okay, which is yes. obviously very important for yeah. any new uh, idea or, or kind of system or kind of design. So where now, what's your, your division for the family-friendly policy? Okay. Um, first thing to say, it's early days. Mm. So there are an awful lot of uh, organisations, um, professional bodies, individual professions, providers of various forms of care that actually need to, first of all, understand and then start applying some of the thinking. So, for example, if you're commissioning a service for, say, let's just take a simple, relatively simple programme like newborn hearing screening. You obviously want the majority of babies, well, closest to 100% as possible, to have a screening test. Obviously, there'll be some positive and some negatives, meaning that there are a group of newborns there who are at higher risk of hearing impairment. They need to be assessed in more detail by, say, an audiology service. The audiology service determines whether they truly do have a hearing impairment or not. Those with the hearing impairment may then need hearing aids and one or two require cochlear implants. Now, obviously, that, if, if you like, is what I would call an initial pathway. It's up to the time of diagnosis and initial intervention. Those children are then obviously living with hearing impairment and they would need education support, um, language support, often social care support, in order to come to terms with their condition. And again, what we'd ideally want is obviously the best management of condition to prevent any secondary consequences, identification of any potential uh, complications early, appropriate assessment and then access to a range of interventions to mediate those. Okay. So in other words that's if you like the cyclical part of the pathway and then obviously for hearing impairment it's a lifelong condition and you might be looking at transition to into education environment at age, say, five, or exit from education into employment around 16, 18, 21, and transition to adult services. But for other conditions, for example, cancer, you'd be talking about a transition back to normality, hopefully, if your cancer's been cured, or if you've got a terminal condition, potentially a transition into palliative care services. So, if you like, the overall pathway consists of an initial pathway up to diagnosis and initial treatment, a living with the condition cyclical pathway where obviously you need a review on a probably, you know, a frequent basis, often an annual basis, and then there's a transition um, stage of the pathway. But common to each component of the pathway, you're first trying to prevent the condition or the complications, you want to identify or recognise that there's a potential problem there, do a comprehensive assessment so you can decide what are the most appropriate interventions. And if you like, that is a, a design plan for a system. It's a bit like um, base pairs in DNA. There are four base pairs, but that determines who you are as a human being or as a tree or as an insect or mm. whatever. Okay. You know. I got you. 
But let's take it one one step slightly, not abstract, but just different, because we know both of us have, have had a, a historical interest in safeguarding and how this might be superimposed, if you like, onto the whole world yes. of safeguarding. Because it's possibly not, well, it may be, you might argue differently, as specific as cancer or, or hearing yes. impairment or whatever. But it's the same principles that you would be yes. applying to this, isn't it? Yes. You, could you just say a little bit about that in a way that I could understand? <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean to say you haven't understood so far? <laughs> no, no, I'm with you so far, but I just want to keep with you. Okay, okay. What we talked about, particularly in child-friendly healthcare, mm. was um, service pathways. In other words, when there's a problem, you want to make sure all the parts are in place and working well together. What I didn't mention is what we call life course pathways. So in other words, throughout life, we experience good things and bad things. And a combination of those factors determine, if you like, life course outcomes, health and well-being as we enter adulthood. And obviously, you accumulate uh, good experience and you also accumulate bad experience. And I think safeguarding is just a really good example of how the thinking between behind rather life course pathways and service pathways comes together. So if we're talking about life course pathways, we know that within a population there are certain determinants that are, if they're present, they're likely to lead to poor outcomes. And the ones, the classic you know, child protection issues of if your parents have learning difficulties, difficulties with substance misuse, uh, domestic violence or mental health problems, the chances are that the children of those parents are likely to have poor education achievement, more likely to come into contact with local authority services, more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system. And actually, if you project really long ways forward, then more likely to have cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure and early mortality. So what we're saying is that the experience in childhood has long-term consequences, and I think both of us kind mm. of know and understand mm. that. So from a life course pathway perspective, you could reasonably say that given the fact that we know there are poor outcomes associated with, say, just those four factors, looking, at, looking for those factors, say in early pregnancy or particularly in early childhood, and then supporting those families with things like um, family nurse partnership programs or what's the other one you mentioned to me early today? Um, 100 families. Oh, the first thousand days. The first thousand or days or... Conception to age two. Yeah, those type of programs yes, where we, yeah. we're recognising that there are vulnerable children and families in society and we're <laughs> saying we need to support those people in a variety of interventions that need to be tailored to the individual family. Even with that support in place, sometimes that's not enough. And mm. obviously ch children mm. do get injured or neglected or emotionally abused by families. And obviously that's when services intervene. Again, primarily to um, change those underlying determinants. But clearly there are some families where either they're unwilling or unable to change, in which case we're then getting into sort of uh, looked after children type scenarios. And that would, if you like, be a service pathway going through, if you like, the child protection system, identifying um, parents where 
the system needs to intervene, then possibly fostering an adoption, etc., etc. Um, so that's what I'm trying to describe here is how life course pathways and service pathways might together, come together, at least the thinking. Okay, got you. I did understand that. Thank sure. you. Yes, no, no, that's fine. Now, as with anything, there's a lot of bits in that whole process that exist already. And what it seems to me is that this, it is a new initiative, but it's knitting together some existing pieces. Getting multi-agency working together sometimes is very difficult. And I know that across the UK especially, there are now multi-agency service hubs, there are places where the disciplines are now sitting under the same roof, sharing the same input and working together in particular situations. There's the Troubled Families Initiative that we know is very... Um, is a very fond initiative of, of this particular government and does seem to be having some impact. But ultimately, what we would be looking to in the Family Friendly Initiative mm. is extra bonus, it's more, it's, it's, a, it's a further benefit for the community. And my question really is, have any of the other countries in Europe that you mentioned that were party to this, the 47 countries that you mentioned, developed it to a further stage than we've got already in the UK that we can actually look to and learn from and learn from mistakes because that's yeah. how you do it. But are, are there examples of this or are we virtually all moving at the same pace or is the UK a bit further ahead? How is it sitting at the moment? Well, I think like with many things in Europe, things are moving in different directions in different places and it's actually quite hard to keep track of yeah. what effect if you like, the child-friendly healthcare uh, initiative has had in different... Certainly it was welcome in, say, a country like Armenia. Um, in Russia, for example, they developed a book of fairy tales describing children's rights derived from fairy tales that, you know, they've had thousands of copies produced in order to promote, if you like, children's participation in healthcare systems. And obviously some of those are will be very, very long... Um, implementation phases before we get a generation of children who understand their rights and but on the other hand you know countries like Sweden they introduce no smacking to children and they introduce that in an educational setting and very quickly children learnt that actually smacking was an inappropriate form of discipline um, so there are countries that are working on this in different ways um, certainly there was a uh, an initiative led by Austria looking at cross-border healthcare mm. because many countries in Europe are quite small and they can't provide all the parts in the pathway. So they need to cooperate with neighbouring countries, say for, you know, very specialised stuff like uh, transplantation, liver, kidney, heart transplants, etc, etc, but sometimes complex surgery. Um, and if you like the the concept of comp all the component parts needing to be in place and working well together, sometimes that has to occur across borders. So it's, it, I think in answer to your question, it's very, very early days. As you know, whole mm -hmm. systems are very, very, very slow to change. It takes approximately 19 years before a publication about a, a drug that works well to actually be kind of accepted no, I, into I take, practice. I, I do take your point. I mean... Essentially, really, it's just a, I just wondered if there had been any kind of advances. But what about what about the traditional method in the UK, for example, which is to have pilot studies 
Uh, anything of that in the pipeline? Uh, in the pipeline, um, obviously strategic clinical networks are becoming uh, potentially the bodies to drive change and improvement in the, particularly the NHS, but I think they all recognise the interdependence on other agencies. Um, so I'm certainly working with the leads of strategic clinical networks to introduce the concept of kind of pathways and networks because very much they are about ensuring you know, appropriate care to local populations, again, using resources efficiently, which you can in another way say all the parts are in place and working well. And clearly at a national level, we have um, an NHS outcomes framework, a public health outcomes framework, a social care outcomes framework. They're all attempting to do the same thing, which is obviously improve the health of the population. And what we need to do is to kind of join those up, and that's, I guess, the role of the Child Health Intelligence Network, to then look at, well, what, what are the outcomes that we want? How are we going to achieve that? And then work back from that to say, well, what do we need to commission? What do we need to deliver? How are we going to regulate and improve okay. what we've got? Imagine that's done. Yeah. Just like that. How's that? Wow, fantastic. <laughs> Imagine that's done right now. There you have whatever they've discovered, achieved, produced, whatever you want. Yeah. On the other side of the room are the frontline practitioners. Yeah. Social workers, police yeah. officers, health professionals, yeah. educators, yeah. voluntary sector workers, yeah. charity workers, etc. Everybody who are involved in some way in maintaining and improving the quality of life of families. How is it getting from one side of the room to the other? Well, how, how would you envisage that happening? A, a national program, a national education program, a rollout, pilot areas to start with, and an and analysis done? Well, I, I, I think as, you know, the improvement gurus um, state, actually you start working with the people who are interested to start off with. You know, because they are, in jargon terms, the early adopters. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the intention is to identify some early adopters and then support them in their process of, yeah, experimenting with the implementation of this. When it comes to particularly interagency working, uh, I think there are some really important things to say. First of all, we, we, we need to have a clarity of purpose. Often there isn't a real clarity of purpose between the different agencies, so we have slightly different agendas. And I think we need to join the, those up. And the headlines would be improving health, reducing inequalities, being sustainable within the resources that we have. The second whole element is the value system that we work to. So some of the things that I've talked about in child-friendly healthcare, now was being really committed to prevention, promotion, protection, participation of children. Children's experience of participation in different services is very, very different at the moment. And actually, collectively, we need to value children in society. You know, they are the, you know, they are our future. Um, and therefore, yeah, having a shared value system between the different groups. And then finally, on a very practical note, I think all agencies need to, yeah, become competent in what I call improvement science, which is constant innovation and improvement collectively. So we all own, you know, you, you know the words, safeguarding is everyone's business. But we need to put, if you like, legs on that idea. At the moment, it's a, it's mm. a head concept. We kind of believe it in our hearts, but we actually need to transfer it to our hips and walk the walk. Well put. 
we've really got to buy in. I mean, and and not wait for a national disaster to force us in. Absolutely. I mean, this is bread and butter service delivery. What we've tended to do, I think, is a work in silos, b develop lots of specialist care, but not necessarily join it all up. But last but not least is. Um, constantly strive on a day-to-day basis you know so I would reflect after doing a a clinic Mm. how was it what went well what didn't go so well how am I going to do it better next time Uh, that you know at a a practitioner level you know whether you're a teacher how how did the lesson go social worker how did that last assessment go wherever possible we use evidence-based decision making but we all know that you know absence of evidence is not necessarily Mm. absence of effect and then we need to do that reflective process, either for ourselves on an individual basis or within our peer group when we say, well, how do you manage that? Well, I do it slightly differently. You know, that challenge and support process. And then at the kind of system level, it's about saying, OK, how's the whole system working? OK. A couple of quick final questions, OK, because we're, we're nearly at the end. Um, firstly, just a practical one. Mm. Um, outside of this interview, where could people read about this or find out more about it if they wanted to look it up? Okay. Um, the British Association for Community Child Health has it on their website. The British Association for Child and Adolescent Public Health has it on their website. If you look at the Council of Europe website and go back to the original child-friendly as opposed to family-friendly, they have it there. There is a very... Short animation on YouTube called the Family Friendly Framework that gives okay. you right. the uh, the bare bones in fifteen minutes, and if you're really keen, you can go back to the Batch website to look at a PowerPoint presentation. <coughs> where if you then have to present this to mm. colleagues, you will find both the slides and a notes page accompanying each slide, which gives you the kind of basics. Because I don't know about you, just looking at the slides alone is never enough. No. I mean, death by slides sometimes. I can understand that. Okay, look, final question. You you know, you've been a paediatrician, a consultant for quite some time. You've seen a lot of initiatives come and go. You've um, worked in the field and on the front line, and I know you've got a lot of expertise in the safeguarding arena as well. What's your instinct about family-friendly in terms of... Do you think... I mean, it sounds so good and it sounds so logical... Um, do you think we'll bite? Do you think it will take? Or, or will it be a longer take, a longer sort of uh, growing season, if you like, or whatever? I mean, how do you feel about it? What, what's your instinct telling you? My instinct tells me that the system needs it. I'm also very aware how slowly systems change. Um, I guess I've been talking about pathways and networks for a considerable part of my professional life, and now there are there is interest in pathways and that you hear the words pathways and networks far more frequently now than you did say fifteen years ago. Um, I I would like to think that it has you know it's an idea that has legs and that will walk run mm. yeah enjoy mm. life, um, but it is like many things, a matter of kind of communicating that to a very wide audience. And I think what I and colleagues need to do is to develop a series of toolkits that support 
implementation with lots of really practical examples to give people that, ah, oh, so that's what you mean, that's how it could work. Because certainly if you look back at Columbier reports, Kennedy reports, all of them are saying the system is becoming increasingly fragmented. And I think, you know, the changes in England from Health and Social Care Act have you know, introduced a market into healthcare and it's becoming more fragmented and competitive rather than collaborative and cooperative. Okay. Simon Linton, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David, very much. Now, that's it for today, folks. And uh, you can listen to this on iTunes, on um, Stitcher. You can listen to it on Podfeed and obviously go to the website www.socialworldpodcast.com or even just type in thoughts on the social world and that will get you through Google or wherever and that will get you to it. I mean, I'm really pleased and I hope you valued what you heard from Simon today. Um, my thanks as always to All by Digital Media for the technical support in putting this podcast together and see that little thing that says voicemail or beside the... Uh, on the website beside the podcast just one click and you can leave a voice message giving some feedback about this i'd really appreciate that because it's always good to hear feedback on things and it's always good to hear what you think about the podcasts anyway for now many thanks and see you soon